Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello, this is Lucinda Carney from the HR Uprising podcast. And I'm really pleased to have somebody here today who's going to help me with a topic that I didn't really know how to address, but I passionately wanted to share some quality information to the listeners on this topic. The topic I'm talking about now is whether or not we're at a tipping point regarding racial equality, you know, how do we get comfortable feeling uncomfortable? And I came across this gentleman through a fantastic LinkedIn um, blog that he published last week, which I will put in the show notes because I think everyone should get a chance to read it. And this gentleman has kindly agreed to come on the podcast to take us through a kind of masterclass on this, how we can practically um, and authentically do something about uh, moving this agenda forward. So I'm very grateful to have Umar Zaman. Um, he's the Charter Fellow of the uh, CIPD. He's the Director of Human Resources and Organisational Development at Sheffield Hallam University. Um, he's also involved internationally in HR and has has a variety of HR and OD roles, so a, a rich background, which I know you're going to bring to the podcast. So Umar, let me hand over to you to also introduce yourself and, and why you felt you wanted to to put your blog out there and, and you know progress this conversation. Thank you, Lucinda. It's, really, it's, a, it's a real pleasure uh, to be invited on, on onto this podcast. Um, so, um, in terms of myself, uh, my background, um, I've been in uh, HR and organisational development uh, for a number of years, um, and I've had a, a balance between uh, quite public sector roles, uh, both nationally and at a, a, a local level. Uh, but I have uh, worked in organisations such as the Home Office, uh, Her Majesty's Inspector for Constabulary. Um, I've done uh, some time, as you call it, in the NHS. So <laughs> I've had um, the the pleasure of, I suppose, working as they were the primary care trusts, um, leading HR, OD uh, and diversity. Um, and then uh, in the higher education sector as well. Um, but, I, but I have done consultancy work both here in the UK and internationally as well. Um, I do try and uh, do different things. And I think that that's what's given me a kind of wide breadth of understanding of different sectors. And um, specifically the HE sector where I am now, I, I really do enjoy it because it enables me to um, really challenge my own thinking. I have academic colleagues and other colleagues who really challenge uh, my thinking. Um, and it, it really is a great place to be. So, yeah. Um, so one of the reasons I wrote the blog, um, and, 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 and if you do get a chance to read it, you'll, you'll read at the start to say, would I have written this uh, if I had been in any other organization? Would I have felt comfortable? And the answer is most probably no. Um, this, what, in terms of what I wrote, I didn't expect the response that I was going to get. I just wrote a blog and just put it out there. But I felt so strongly, and I have felt strongly about this for years, that, you know, we talk about the glass ceiling for women. Um, 
And I just find, you know, I just find that when we talk about race, things get diverted and diluted. Um, and absolutely, I've been a gender champion for years. Um, but, but for me, the time was right to be very honest about my experiences. And my experiences, both in personal life and in my career, have been a true battle. You know, uh, getting to director level for some is a challenge and you know sometimes people get there quite easily it has been a real hard challenge uh, to be able to get there and more happy more than happy to try and talk through yeah i was going to ask can you help us because again i don't know whether people recognize how that comes about or they would probably be unaware of that many people would yeah well i think the thing is that um you know i've had to move around a number of organizations to progress my career um and part of that is is because Structurally, organizations will tend to have people who they favor, who they push through, who they see as talent. Um, and, you know, for me, I used to go and work for lots of organizations and I thought, you know, oh, this sounds like a good job, I'll go and do it. I think as you get a bit older, you start to realize that it becomes a battle and you want to work in an organization which values you, which values you for who you are. Um, and that's where I am at the moment. Um, it's you know, getting opportunities doesn't come easy. And the times I've been, I've had said to me, you're just not quite there yet. You know, you just, you, you, you know, and I'm kind of looking at them thinking, well, I kind of know that, but that's why I'm going for the job because, you know, I want to get experience to get into that, but I've got lots of stuff that I do bring to the role. Um, that's a face doesn't fit thing. And that would happen to women as well, I guess. Um, and it, because it's a non specific bit of feedback as it's not, you know, yeah. this specific behavioral competency is that you can't help but feel that that is you just don't fit in the club when you get that sort of thing yeah. and, and I think the other thing is that um it's it's when you go to an interview over the years I have been to interviews and I've known as soon as I've walked in I'm just not gonna this is not I'm not getting this job and for me I've always tried to be driven to 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 get to a senior position but overall, it's the subtleties that you just can't quite put your finger on. And for me, it's the, it's the micro-level paper cuts that yeah. I call, which are the most damaging. Because, you know, when I've gone for jobs, um, I've known I've been the qualified, I've known I've got the experience, um, and it has been that your face won't fit. But then you've got the other angle, which is internally when people being, are given opportunities, where actually it matters who you are interacting with, what the networks are. And I learned that very late in my career, that actually networking is extremely important. And I think that comes a little bit from my background, from my South Asian background of, you know, um, just get your head down, work as hard as you can, and things will happen. Mm. And part of me believes that. But part of me also believes you've got to work twice as hard. And I think that's a common theme you'll find with a lot of uh, people in career, sports, from main backgrounds. The, I mean, that I can understand as, as well. Maybe it links, it's not overt, but it's to do with the fact that if you're not part of the club, whether you choose to actively be part of it outside of, of, of work... Um, and again, sorry, I'm, going to, I'm, put, I'm linking a female where we might use the term old boys club or something. If you're not part yeah. of the lads... 
yeah, that yeah. Um, go out and do things. And this is not at all, I don't, I, I'm not interested in being sort of negative people. It's just things that I think I have experienced that where I think, well, they yeah. kind of naturally want to talk about football and blah, blah, blah. Then I suppose you don't have that level of rapport if you then went for the job. So you're not top of the list. So, I mean, so that's something I can see there's a logic to how that behaves. And again, equally, if you're somebody who just doesn't choose to engage with the, the in crowd, then yes. you might not get the opportunities. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah I, I completely get where you're coming from. I, you know, in my blog, I give an example of cricket, mm. for example. Yeah, and I, share that. I, I, so I, I was very young when I wanted to become a professional cricketer. Um, and you look back now and you think, actually, yeah, I don't drink. I've never, never been going to pubs. Uh, that's not my type of thing. Um, you know, and it just, you just weren't part of that uh, crowd. Yeah. Uh, but I suppose if you refer it back to the workplace, you know, talent comes in all different forms. And I think great leaders are those that actually see talent in different ways. And they believe that, you know, diversity brings a different way of working and thinking. And, I, you know, I can name in my head, you know, some of the great leaders I've worked with who just thought, who gave me opportunities, actually. And actually, they weren't famed. They were white, senior colleagues. But actually, the interesting thing is they understood some of the challenges. So uh, I will go back to a point when I worked at Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary. Um, there's a chap called Saroni Flanagan, um, you know, uh, uh, an ex-chief constable in Northern Ireland, understood the troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, and he asked me to come and work on the Government Review of Policing you know, a huge opportunity uh, mm. due to a bit of work that I'd done. Um, and he really understood the issues. He, he you know, he, he, he got that. And sometimes you do get that lucky break. Um, so not everybody is like that. And I'm not mm. saying that. What I'm saying is that structural racism does exist. Yeah. And I think this whole movement um, that sadly started with the sad death of George Floyd in America, you know, George Floyd sadly wasn't the first person to die in custody. You know, we had somebody a couple of couple of months back who died in custody here in the UK, didn't even really make the news. Mm. I think that's where I thought, you know, we are at a tipping point because the whole world literally was talking about Black Lives Matter. So, and I'd love to, we must, we'll go forwards in terms of, in terms of the structure, we're going to talk about practicalities and, and what happens in terms of this. Um, you, I'd love to just go back to you use that term, the paper cuts, um, that the really that because we might be using that. I might be using terms like that, which might, you know, could you give us examples of those sort of things? Yeah, that sure. So, wear you down. So, yeah, so um, I call it a death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, um, you know, you can get a couple, and they're painful, but you kind of forget about them in ten minutes. But if you get them every single day then they become very, very painful. So examples of such I can give you are things like, um, oh, you, um, you know, oh, we're looking for a good place to have a curry tonight. You, you, you'll know where that is. You, know, you tell me. Um, as it happens, I do like curry, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that actually, well, actually, if you ask my, one of my staff this, and you know, not to mention his name, he, he's, he's from an Asian background, but he doesn't eat curry. He's, he's been brought up in Oxford. Uh, went to Cambridge, you know, so, you know, that wasn't his thing, you know, um, so, so there's a there's stereotyping. But the other thing is, um, you know, you get, you get those subtle hints from people 
you know, you walk into a meeting um, and you're the only person who's different there of colour. Um, and there's just that feeling you think, oh, my God. But actually, you can't let anybody know that, that that's how you're feeling. Um, and it becomes quite difficult whereby, you know, I've been in meetings before where you say something and this is most probably unconscious. You've just said an idea and then somebody else says it, it's ignored, but somebody else says it and suddenly it's taken on board. And you're sitting thinking, I just said that, you know. So I think when we talk about those types of microaggressions, they do exist. I think the other type of microaggression is, is when you are trying to progress in your career and you're constantly being told, um, no, no, you need some more experience. You need, you need to do this. You need to do that. Um, and you take it on board, but actually it does get to a point where it becomes very, very taxing. Um, and unless you've been through it, I don't, I don't think it makes sense to people. If you, you said know? to them, because I'm sure you, given your, the area that you're in, if people said that to you and you said, so what is it I need to do? So you would have gone back and challenged that. What response were you getting there? Well, I think you're part of it. You're, you're in a way, you're, it depends where you are in your career. You know, um, would I have written this five years ago? No. And the reason I would not have written this five years ago is because it was a very slight different time and this would most probably go against me going for certain jobs against and organisations. Yeah. Um, but actually, I've now got to a point where I wouldn't want to work for those organisations anyway. Um, but when you're trying to progress in your career and people say that to you, you've been taught all your life that actually people in authority in jobs, you know, whatever they're saying is right. Um, and and it, it becomes very difficult to challenge. Mm. So what you end up doing is a lot of organisations tend to lose their black and ethnic minority staff and their turnover is quite high. And then people, they wonder, why is our turnover so high here? Um, so what happens is it gets projected on the individual. Now, this is a bit of a generalisation, but there is a high turnover in lots of organisations from BAME staff. Exit interview data is not really taken as seriously as it should be. You know, uh, you know, you've been in HR as well as, and you know, we'll have exit interviews, and oh yes, seen as somebody being a little bit uh, sour grapes or yeah. whatever. Um, but actually, I've, I, I think that information is, is the golden nuggets for HR professionals, whether you agree with it or not. Well, sometimes you know, people don't want to listen to those answers because then there's a, an obligation to maybe do something about it. Yeah, well, you don't you don't want to hear things that you you don't want to hear. You know, uh, right. it, it, it's. Um, and then I think actually people sleep, organisations sleepwalk into major problems. Um, I'm also thinking there, again, I'm not quite saying this is devil's advocate. Um, I'm yeah. just thinking that if you are somebody where you feel that you've been discriminated against before and you've gone on to the next role and you've got a manager who said, who's just not very good at giving performance feedback and they say, well, you know, you're not quite there someone else might challenge them and they might, might still give you something nonsense and, and you, you know, someone confident and they go, I'll go, oh, well, they're just useless. That's their problem, right? Yeah. But um, if you have experienced, you know, repetitive discrimination, then you're more likely to think that it's personal. I, just, 
is that reasonable? I'm thinking, you know, the, I, I, what I can't say is whether it's an unconscious bias or uh, a conscious bias. It might genuinely be that that manager hasn't got a bias against you. They're just not very good at uh, developing people. You have some people who are just poor managers. Um, uh, you have people who are genuinely haven't got a discriminatory bone in their body, but they just do not know how to interact with people. And emotional intelligence comes into it. I think that's mm-hmm. huge. Um, but then, you know, and I'm not saying this happens all the time, so I don't want listeners to think that this is the experience all the time because there's been some really great experiences as well. But we do agree, you know, that the, the halo horn effect in terms of, you know, as soon as you see somebody, you know, you have an instant kind of uh, recognition with them, Um and, and it also depends, in my view, my experience, is my personal experience, of where you're working. So if you're, if you're working in a city where there's been diversity and people are used to it, um, there's, a, there's, a slightly different, there's a slightly different feel. Um, and, and, and um, you know, I'm in Sheffield at the moment, for example, um, and it was really powerful because I got a, an email from our vice chancellor, Professor Sir Chris Husbands, who I work with very closely. And, and I said to him, I said, you know, I have a sense of belonging here. And I think you just thought about that for a minute, but actually, you know, that's a big thing for me, um, you know, to have that sense of belonging. Now, I'm not saying it's a perfect place. There's lots to do there and, and so on, but you don't feel out of place. And I can't explain it. <laughs> I right. can't put an explanation on We need that. to know. We need to be able to bottle yeah, it. It's so a secret. Well, the, 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 I think the point is that, you know, and, the, and those people, and it might even be, you know, women, people with disabilities, who, who will say the same thing, that they feel comfortable with being who they are. Um, and we've got the same thing with uh, LGBT colleagues at, at Hallam. You know, where another colleague of mine, um, James Johnston, just wrote an article around Pride. And, you know, um, and it was open, honest. Um, and for me, that's, that's a real temperature test of an organisation. Of how comfortable people are because I've been in organizations whereby if you say this type of stuff you're branded as a um a trouble causer potentially so this says sounds like there's something open and accepting about the culture and you're seeing other people of difference be able to speak out about being yeah. different and that being supported by the university I mean we spoke earlier that um I think the twitter or Hallam I saw them picking up on your blog and supporting it so almost almost being proud about it as opposed to tolerating it so celebrating the difference rather than tolerating it yeah. um and so i wonder is it what's the opposite of a micro paper cut so are there micro positives then that you see in a positive environment maybe that would be an example of someone putting something out on social media and it being reinforced um yeah. you said yeah. you've got a strong relationship with, with um your professor your vice chancellor there's something there about you know positives yeah, i think i think the the great thing is i think where i am currently we have um before I took the role, um, I, I was very careful about where I was going and who I was working with. Because one of the things I'd like to touch on later is the, the, the mental health impact of, of, of almost internalizing these things over the years. Um, mm. and, and that is quite powerful. Mm. And, the, the, you know, for me, um, there's a, a Dr. Sally Jackson, who's a chief people officer there, who I... Who, who I work with, and obviously Professor Chris Husbands um, and other colleagues, um, they've been so open about 
we want to make change. We want to deliver change. And they have done so, such a fantastic job up until now as well. Um, and for me, it was, yeah, I'm going, going into an organization with an open door here. Um, that makes a huge difference because I think you lose great talent if you don't. And for me, this is about talent management and you know, not losing those, those I call them dime, un, un, uncut diamonds in an organization um, because they don't feel comfortable there. So something you're saying there about the strength of the leadership and the culture. Um, when you're saying that um, Sally said something, but what, is, what would be an example of something that just gave you that feeling of acceptance? Yeah, so for me, it's, you know, um, you know understanding that, that when you talk about delivering real substantial change, that the door is open and yeah, you go on, do what you need to do to make this happen. And when you have that mandate, it is very, very powerful because especially the higher education sector, it's very bureaucratic. It's, you know, um, you know, run with lots of, uh, um, kind of challenges, uh, with regards to governance and, and so on. And actually what I felt different about Sheffield Hallam is that, it is go ahead and just crack on with it. If we feel we need to make change, let's go and do it. And it's a trust issue. I think it comes down to, yes, we trust you to go ahead and do this. Now, the conversations on race, so we are just launching on the back of this open conversations on race, which are going to be facilitated by um, a, a really great facilitator, a chap called uh, Cole Mayhay who's an ex-chief senior police officer uh, who's now in diversity and leadership. And I've said I want to know holds board conversation. And for an organisation just to say, yeah, okay, let's do that. That's powerful. So we all say, I mean, really, not what I'm hearing here, it sounds like great leadership. It's about being empowered. It's about great leadership. It's just that you perhaps wouldn't expect to get that or haven't exp- – that, that feels – you know, it, that shouldn't be dependent on the colour of your skin as whether you get great leadership or not. And I don't think they're doing that just because of the colour of your skin. That's just demonstrating good leadership. It, it is. And, I, and I've and i worked in a number of organisations um, and there have been pockets of good leadership, but they are a lone voice. And what I realised was people are saying the right things but not doing the right things. So... Um, was that an unconscious feeling? I'm just wondering, was there a sort of, you know, sometimes you get a gut feel about whether people are insincere or something, or you'd see differences, you'd see contradictory behaviours? Yeah, th- there is. I, I think it's difficult for me to say whether it's conscious or unconscious bias, mm-hmm. um, whether it's microaggressions or whether it's not microaggressions. That's the, that's the problem with this, you see, because yeah. you, can't, you can't put your finger on it. So, mm-hmm. so when you can't put your finger on it, it makes it very, very difficult. So what you end up doing is you end up, apologies for my little boy in the background, <laughs> you end up actually um, causing yourself to have doubt yeah. uh, on, 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 on whether you are actually going to be successful or not. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's almost, it goes back to that point we had about the manager. It might actually not be anything overt, but because you've had to experience it so long and your point about maybe the well-being and that general impact wearing down of your self-esteem, then maybe you start to think it's about you rather than about them. And then you don't feel able to go for the next opportunity. You don't feel worthy to the same extent, maybe because you've been worn down. That's Yeah, I, I, and I, think, I think it's fair to say, um, if I'm being very, very honest, um, 
until I got this job, um, I was ready to throw in the towel and go into consultancy because I just didn't want the organisational politics of of it all. Um, uh, and luckily, this came along, and I thought, okay, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to do this, and it's a, a good decision. How, you know, how exciting! But, how exciting! Yes. As, as a, really exciting, really great. So, okay, so. So we've got some pieces here. Don't worry about noise in the background. We, we're all in this world. We accept that we're all working at home. And I've, I've given up trying to be professional at working from home for the last 14 weeks now. I've, I've, I don't think a, it makes you any less professional. It just makes us more real, doesn't it? And that's, I mean, that's maybe what, what we've needed in the workplace, yeah. to be more real, well, real conversations. That's an interesting point, uh, Lucinda, because I suppose that, again, I'm going to be very open and frank about this. I think, you know, my experience has been, I'm not sure of this, but when you are from... Um, a, a minority background, you are almost more inclined to think you've got to be more professional. You you have to really make sure that everything is is in line and perfect because it will damage your career and so on. So these are the small things that you know impact. You know, I've over the years I've most probably done so many hours additional to my contracted hours. Yeah, because also I, I needed to make sure people saw that I was working hard. Can I but ask you, I don't know, what, sorry, Emma, don't carry on. No, they're the things you just can't really explain in, in detail, but yeah, that's... Um... Can I ask you this, and maybe I'd have to ask, so some of what you say, and I think to a lesser extent, it, some of what you say, I think um, women experience some of it. Um, I'm wondering if you are a, a BAME woman, is, it a, is there a multiplier effect? Would you have you spoken to colleagues on that or... Absolutely. Uh, it, yeah. You know, um, you know, and intersectionality doesn't, you know, it doesn't stop at just being somebody from a different background. You know, you, you could have somebody who's uh, being a woman with a disability and LGBT. You know, I've 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 got colleagues and friends such yeah. as that. So, so so I think the the discriminatory effect quadruples, double doubles, quadruples, you know, gets yeah. gets worse. So I think that, you know, there's something around specifically in the workplace. So, you know, if you have people, you know, with Islamophobia and, um, you know, people who wear headscarves, you know, there was a point after 9-11, for example, you know, where I, some of my um, friends and colleagues were so scared to go into work, you know, thinking, well, I'm traveling into work with this. I'm, there's going to be a real problem here. Um, I'm not going to get promoted and so on and so on. And I think we'd be naive to think that, there wasn't an element of truth in that, you yeah, know, yeah. not everywhere, but certainly there would be somewhere. Hmm. Okay. So um, in terms of where you want to go, so the, uh, we talked originally in terms of where we're taking this podcast, I think this is an interesting conversation. I hope the listeners as well. So yeah. thank you very much. Um, what we want to do as ever is try and make it quite practical. And, um, and I think there are practicalities already that we're hearing in terms of uh, just focusing on a strong quality leadership culture, leaders with good EQ, um, managers, maybe teaching our line managers that if they that they need to be able to give people good quality feedback about their development, who whatever, they need to learn to do that because if they don't, that person, particularly if they're um, a BAME uh, candidate, they might actually interpret that as being about them as opposed to being about the manager being not so good. So there's a few things I'm thinking that are quite practical that you could almost um, support as an OD leader in an organisation, but w- what else would you say? Because you've got some so, great so tips. Me, uh, I call it inclusive leadership. Um, you know, old money would be 
uh, EDI training, equality and diversity training, you know, talking years back would be, you know, uh, gender equality training, race equality training. For me, I talk about inclusive leadership. And I think everybody can be an inclusive leader, regardless of whether you're in a management position or not. Um, I've always looked for people, uh, in, I've, I've always looked for those quality leaders who made me feel part of the team, who included me, who made me feel, you know, to a point safe, mm-hmm. that you can, you know, be, be, be part of that team openly. Um, and for me, the, it's so important that if you don't have inclusive leaders, you have increased grievances, you have increased sickness, you have a reduction in productivity, and so on and so on. And I think that, that, that I don't think we, we can, I, don't, I think we underestimate the value of investing in this area to get people to become inclusive in their approach. Um, and I always say that, that, that actually I see diversity as a business benefit because, you know, if you have people around the table who are different, women, uh, you know, uh, BAME people, uh, people with disabilities, you have richer decisions being made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my, my leadership team uh, up until about six months ago was all women and some of the I always bounce ideas off them. Uh, for me, it is absolutely critical because you've got that. I believe it's more measured sometimes in the decision making. So for me, I've always valued diversity. Not everybody else does. I think they like to surround themselves sometimes with people who are like them, who think like them. I think that's poor leadership. I personally think it's a sign of weakness because people just want to reinforce their own um, ego, if you like. Um, and, and don't want to encourage or almost sign a fear, someone who is actually a fearful leader because then they want to reinforce who, how they are, whether they do that consciously or not. I don't know. I've seen that in a few places, including schools, actually. But, um, yeah, I, I can completely see that. I, funny, I just w- ran a webinar this morning on teams and the whole principle of a team is difference, right? We're more effective. Uh, you know, it's, if the more diversity, the more effective you'll be as a team, to be perfectly honest, um, lower risk and all those things. So yes, I can definitely see see that. So it's, it's valuing valuing that, and th- and that's what you're saying. So you know, Sheffield Hallam is is a great case study you're seeing here in terms of doing that. That you've given us examples about how you're empowered to go and have these conversations. And talk about how one of those might work. How how a, a you know how a challenging. Have you run any of those sessions yet? No, not yet. But I've I've run them in other organisations, and I can give you an example. So you know, um, I won't mention where, but but. Um, but, you know, I ran a, a session uh, once on microaggressions, racial microaggressions, and uh, majority white audience, and they, they didn't feel comfortable talking about it. So we, we did this web chat type of thing where they could post questions, uh, and they came up. Uh, this was when we were back, you know, in, in pre-COVID. Um, and some of the, the questions I was asked were... Well, what about the white people who are getting, um, you know, uh, discriminated against? What about what about the white majority, uh, and so on? And you know, we answered those questions in a very positive way. So I think you need to take people with you on this journey. You cannot have the old style approach to banging people over the head with legislation. It hasn't worked up until now, and it's not about to start working now. But you um, know. If we- um, so for me, you know, 
not using legislation as a driver. You know, um, we've moved on, I think, from the business case, because I think the business case is established for diversity. What we need to understand is the business value of, of making sure this is done right. Because I think businesses have now started to realize and understand that if they don't have people who feel valued, they don't have people who feel included, it affects their business, um, regardless of whether you're in the private sector or the public sector. Mm. Um, so for me, you know, we've got to have a real focused approach to that. I have some clear ideas on what I think an inclusive leader is. But that, that, is, my, that is my opinion. But, you know, um, a couple of those are, uh, Lucinda, be open and aware. You know, um, you know, for me, a leader's ability to be able to adapt to behaviours and work situations and cultures, I think, are a foundation of a really great leader. I mm. think that's really, really important. I think on the race equality agenda, don't feel guilty. You know, uh, be an effective advocate of the race equality agenda. And what I mean by that is don't be afraid to ask some of the questions that everybody wants to ask, majority want to ask, but are just too afraid to ask, or potentially they will be labelled a racist or a sexist or homophobe. Sometimes you've just got to be brave enough to ask those. Um, or actually they're scared of saying the wrong thing, I mean, as well, because it's... It, it, that's the, I mean, to a certain extent, we, we were talking a bit off camera, weren't we, about, about the experience I've got at home. We've, I've got a 16-year-old daughter and we've been reading Invisible Women and it's led to some challenge in the household to um, dad, who, who's okay to a point, and also yeah. granddad, who happens to be um, locked down with us. And there are yeah. very different opinions. And what we've got to be careful about is that kind of um, accusatory approach because that doesn't – your point about bringing people with you – yeah, it, it's not. It, it's no point in holding people to blame. This blame doesn't take us anywhere, and I think that people then start to fight back if they feel threatened. Um, so it's really helping to be inclusive and, and open. Um, it is, and I think it's it's about not being afraid to hear some difficult things. You yeah. know, um, you know, we, you know, when when we talk about white privilege, people suddenly just go into a. A frenzy sometimes. Here's the question, but what's the right answer then? So, I mean, I'm reading at the moment the um, why I'll stop, why I won't talk to white people about yeah. that. Um, it's great, very well written, actually, I've the title yeah. now, but I'm, I'm reading at the moment. Yeah. Um, but there is this thing where when people feel a bit guilt, we, we feel bad because we don't want to live in a society like that. Many of us don't want um, that to be the case, but then we're not quite sure what the right response is. Almost a bit like if you talk to you know someone, someone being bereaved, people have different um, illnesses. Yeah. Sorry, people have, this is probably a really bad example. But we yeah. have different. Well, sometimes you, you don't know what the right response is to somebody. I'd love to know what is the right thing to say to, to someone who says, well, "Actually, you've got white privilege. I haven't." And what's what is an appropriate I, response? That is such an interesting question, isn't it? I think I think you know people see that as a different every, everybody sees that in a different way so when i first heard the phrase i thought whoa well, that's a bit that's a bit um, aggressive isn't it but then the more i've read into it you know it's not about saying you know you know there is white privilege so anybody who's white who's been who's you know have had the silver spoon in their mouth you know they might get they might get a little bit defensive so hang on a second i've worked really hard to get to where i am and, and you most probably have mm. the challenge here is 
the white privilege element is, is, is when you walk into a room, you do not have the barrier, first of all, of not being white. Mm. So, so this, this kind of pretense around structurally over the years that, you know, that's been ingrained in people's mind through advertising, through, through films, through media, through so on, you know, um, it's even ingrained in Bain, people from Bain backgrounds. You know, you see, sadly, you know, a group of, um, you know, uh, Bain kids, for example, in hoodies, and you're walking down a dark night, straight away in your head, you're going to think, well, there's something. But, but actually, is that bias kicking in? I don't know. But the white privilege element is such that, that people need to understand that it's not about them. It's not, it's not personal. Yeah. This is about structural racism that's been around for years. Um, and, and basically what's happened over the, over, well, I'd say, over the last three weeks, I've not seen this before. And I've been involved um, in this for years. I, I did a, a role at the Home Office, which was directly in response to a BBC documentary that came out, um, which was a, a panorama documentary around uh, police uh, being racist, undercover police being racist. And as a result, they put together a team that, that formed the race equality program for the whole of the police service. Uh, I led that at the home office with, with the uh, uh, Association of Chief Police Officers. And I didn't feel that feeling then. So that's why I think over the last three weeks, and my, my blog said, you know, are we at a tipping point? I, I think we are, because you've got people protesting out there of all colours. Mm. And, and it's fantastic. And you've got places in Denmark, Germany, all of Europe. I've not seen that before. Mm. And that, that's why I think we are at a tipping point. So that is, so is, then how can we take it forward positively and would like to see society to be more equal? Is that an appropriate response? Uh, you know, I, I, we want to work, work together to... Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think this is about... The, uh, this is a really difficult one because it's such a wide spectrum of issues, yeah. you know, from, from, from uh, structural racism in the police service, you know, to, you know, uh, to people having it ingrained in their mind that, you know... Um, White, white privilege for me is, you know, if you drive a nice car, are you going to be stopped and searched by the police? Yeah. The likelihood is no, unless no. something's wrong with your car. Um, if you are black Afro-Caribbean or, uh, or Asian and you are driving a nice car, will you be, is there likely that you could be stopped? Yes. I'm from a professional background. I drive a, a decent car and I've been stopped on a number of occasions. So, so, you know, um, so there is something in the system. I think when you look at employment, if we're talking about HR, yeah. are, our, are our HR systems geared up to understand the different cultures that we've got? As HR leaders, are we really challenging behaviours that, that we would inside think this, this is not right? But because the organisation is saying, no, 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 this person's a problem, get this person out because they're challenging or, or whatever they're doing. I think that's where the difference comes in. Because I think if you have teams, and I, I, I would please say my team at Hallam 
thinks diversely because I've said I will not accept anything else. Mm. That may be that they challenge me and say, you're making the wrong decision here. And that's absolutely fine. But that means as a leader, you've got to be open enough to be able to think in a different way. And I think over the years, that's not, that's not happened. So you'll have people from black and Asian back, backgrounds in a higher, going through a higher prevalence of, of disciplinaries or at a quicker rate. You will have um, a lot more people from BAME backgrounds potentially getting shortlisted, but then it drops off like a cliff, cliff edge when it comes to appointments. You will have less BAME staff, uh, if I take the example of the NHS, being um, very much concentrated in the very middle, lower okay. management jobs. You go start going into the higher bandings and that's it, they become non-existent. Plus you have quite a high proportion of in there well, as well, absolutely. don't you? So it's definitely statistically significant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you look, if you take London and Tower Hamlets as an example, you know, you just across the road from from the capital finance of this country, you know, in London, you've got uh, Tower Hamlets, which is extremely high proportion of Bangladeshi communities. How many of those communities actually go and work in the city? You cross the cross the point and go into the city, and you'll see hardly any, yeah. apart from cleaning. And facility staff, you know, so there is disproportionality. We just need to be acceptable to it and say that we're going and, to challenge it. And from a practical point of view, if you're in an HR role, you could just keep an eye on the statistics and and be prepared to challenge the hiring managers and say, or or the um, managers asking performance management, and say, you know, what is the reason? Make sure that and, and and ask people to challenge themselves. Is this is this genuinely on performance? Is it a level playing field that I am? measuring against which of course in HR we would all say it should be um, anyway you should have clear criteria that are about behaviors not subjective but we know again maybe it does come round to ensuring we have good quality um, processes uh, you know recruitment and performance management processes in our organization and we make sure that our managers have the skills to carry them out um, cleanly and 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 a part of that is making sure that they are detaching their natural bias from a process. And, and yeah, so we can maybe challenge that in terms of our processes. That's so difficult, Kristen, because, mm. you know, I, I believe that everybody has biases. You know, we, we are all human, mm. regardless of, you know, what background we're from. We all have biases. And, you know, some of, some you know, some of the possibly biases that, well, the, the bias that some communities from a BAME community have towards other BAME communities mm-hmm. are also mm-hmm. prevalent. And I think, you know, so, so it's, I'm not naive enough not to think that that exists. I think the challenge here is what do we do as HR professionals to challenge that? And there is not many really out there who are HR OD professionals, but also diversity professionals. You either have a diversity professional or a HR professional some might mix the two, but 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 really, you know, shouldn't we making shouldn't we making sure that all our HR people are really up to speed on diversity, and not just the legislative part? You know, I'm not talking about making sure we stay out of employment tribunals or, no. or making sure employment legislation. Championing it, championing it, absolutely. And mm. we are in such a powerful position. Mm. All mm. HR people are because. Managers out there, good good managers and poor managers, rely on HR 
to make sure that they're following process and doing the right thing. And again, maybe the loop back here as to how we could do it in a better way is if we did see that, the, you know, 10%, that the proportions are out, keep an eye on the data to see where there is, but then the way you challenge it is in a supportive way. You know, oh, how come are we, you know, what are the criteria to coach people that, that we don't need to assume that it is racism, it's to coach people as actually, are you being objective in your decision making? Full stop. Because there is other bias. They might like one person and not like another person. There are other ways in which that happens. So it's helping people to be better at being objective. I, I'm wanting to be more radical now, if I'm being honest, okay. because um, I've done that for 20 years. Yeah. And So you I've, say call it out. Well, I've coached the hell out of people. <laughs> it's, right. For me, um, why, why did we get a shift in the makeup of the FTSE 100 boards of women? Or we're getting there. Mm. You, know, you know, why have we got... You know, and it's great to see senior women in such fantastic positions of influence in organisations because, you know, we've introduced, you know, targets. We've introduced real driving positive action initiatives to make that happen. If you look at the House of Commons, you know, you see the the, the makeup as it was to 20 years ago. Wow, different, mm -hmm. you know, in both ethnicity and um, female representation. When we come to talk about targets on race, suddenly everybody gets a little bit uncomfortable. Suddenly we start to think, whoa, hang on a second. We don't want to give people jobs because they're, because they're BAME. I agree. You should only get the job if you are qualified, up speed, etc. Is that because, though, people, this is almost like the elephant in the room, but the reality is that almost by saying there's a difference in your skin colour is inferring that we're racist because they're pretending that everything's fine and it's neutral. Um, but actually to then go, no, we should have targets in that area. People, that, uh, do you understand what I'm trying to say? <laughs> Put me out of my misery. No, 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 no. I, you know, I know before we started this, you know, I said, you know, we should not be afraid to ask these difficult questions. Yeah. It, you know, for me, you know, I, especially all my colleagues who I've worked with over the years, start to apologise. But no, th this is exactly what we should be doing. We should be having these uncomfortable yet comfortable conversations, you know. Um, and, and the way I see it is this. It's quite simple. It's about levelling the playing field. Yeah. The playing field is not level. If we look at all the data, it points to the, to the point that the, 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 the playing field isn't level. We only have to look at COVID-19 and we look at the disproportionate impact of BAME people who have been affected and mm -hmm. who have died. I, you know, an example of this is, and I've noticed it because I, I noticed, you know, I have Facebook and I have notifications of, you know, when there's deaths in the community or whatever. And every day there has been people dying from this who I know, you know, and I just think, whoa, this is just, this is bizarre. So, there is health inequalities for BAME people, BAME people. And, you know, when I was working in the NHS, I got a report once which really made me sit down and almost put me in tears. You know, it's, you know, it, it says if you are uh, somebody from a South Asian background and you are a mother going to give birth, you are three times more likely to die giving birth. This is in 2018. That was the statistics then. And it's still the same now. So, you know, I look at that in my context of my family, I think, does that mean my daughter 
he's really at that risk. Why? Why? Why is that the case? So, so when I talk about employment, you, you only have to look at representation. In the higher education sector, you know, I can only look at, you know, in my organisation, and this is where we have got some way to go, you know, I'm the only BAME director in an organisation of over 5,000 staff. So, yes, we're, we're, we're going in the right direction, but my God, we've got a, a long way to go. And, and, I, and, I, and I think you, in, in, in the blog, um, Lucinda, I pointed at the start to my daughter, and you mentioned your mm. daughter, and it's, I think it's really important to say, uh, we were in a, an area that was predominantly white, very nice area. The amount of racist abuse she got, this was last year, in her second year in, in, in secondary school, and the school doing nothing about it led me to move house. Yeah. And I think to myself, things can't remain like that. No. So, so I think the, there is something around structural racism, which is the system. And old money, it would be institutional racism, mm -hmm. what it was called. I think the first point is accepting that it does exist. Mm -hmm. And I think organisations are so afraid to accept that it actually exists due to the fear of them having a negative impact on their reputation. I think it's strong leadership. I think it's great leadership when people say, we have got a problem. Now let's try and find a solution. Yeah, exactly. You can only do that. It's almost like when you admit you've got the problem, can you fix it? So, Absolutely. And it's Absolutely. not about, and it's not being, it's not your fault. It's not one person's fault. It's the way things have been for years and years and years. So how do we admit it, face it and, and fix it? Yeah. And, and the thing for me is, this is about having ambassadors for change. And this is not about whether you're BAME, white, whatever colour. It doesn't make absolute jot bit of difference to me, really. It matters if you've got the right intentions to deliver the change. Yeah. And I suppose this is a call out to all HR colleagues who might um, hear this, um, that, you know, you're in such a great position to influence change. Um, and I think you mentioned your daughter having these robust conversations generations are changing mm. and I think people are more used to diversity people are getting more used to thinking well what is going on here this is nothing wrong with this so I think if HR doesn't adjust now we're going to start to have organizations that aren't great places for people who want to come and work there yeah and they and, and the young generation wants to come through with a change they want they want all this to change so it's we can enable that as as people come in as well yeah. I guess I think that's we've we've talked and we could go on. I think we, that's probably quite a strong place to end on, isn't it? As being the champions of change, being remembering we've got both the responsibility and the opportunity to make a difference. Um, all the classic stuff is still the same: good stuff, leadership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but calling people out, and and I heard your point, which was about um, the soft way of doing it has been and gone. Well. I'm, there's balance. I'm not saying be aggressive and, and, and set people up against each other because we don't need that either. But actually just being straight and calling people out and with the facts is, yeah. is not well, a bad I, thing to do. Well, uh, 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 if, if it's okay, I'd like to finish with just Easy. three points, I think, which would be helpful. Uh, again, which, which, which actually uh, my vice chancellor, uh, Chris Husband, challenged me to, to do, say, where can we improve more? 
And I was like, oh, that's fantastic, because yeah. I was trying to be quite balanced. And so, so there's three things. I think in your organisations, don't paper over the cracks on race equality. You know, do not dilute the situation with, you know, as soon as it comes, people feel quite uncomfortable and they end up talking about other protected groups, which is not saying it's not important, but we must focus on one thing in order to solve a problem first before we try and resolve everything else. The second thing is take an authentic stance against racial discrimination. You know, um, you know, don't be afraid to open up the debate. Don't be afraid to invest, even at a time when we are, organizations are looking to, to retract their kind of spending. This is one area I would say you will regret it if you decide to, to take this down. So really, really try and drive that up. And finally, challenge your own privilege. Mm. You know, you don't have to do that in front of everybody. You can do it while you listen to music in your car, driving to work whenever we do go back. Um, but, but try to uh, understand the hurt, the challenge that people who are different from you go through. Um, and that might be as simple as saying, I'm going to have a coffee with somebody that I would never normally have a coffee with. Uh, and just have a conversation about life. And for me, that's the best equality training you can get. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to finish on the, all li- the Black Lives Matter thing, you know, I just felt there was this debate going on around all lives matter. And actually, I agree with it. I, I absolutely, why wouldn't you agree with that? But I don't think you can agree with that fully until you realise that all lives do truly matter. That includes no matter what background you're from. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think that's if we can come from that perspective, then I think we'll be we'll be we'll be we'll be doing well and making change. Let's hope this is the tipping point and and progress for the future. You know, it's quite exciting. Um, if people wanted to connect with you or get in touch with you, how would they find you? Um, if they can, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, so if you just search my name, Umar Zaman, um, please, we'll put your LinkedIn do, in the notes actually. As yeah, well. please, yeah, please do connect with me. Um, and it's got all my details there, my email and everything. Um, more than happy to have a conversation with anybody. Uh, I think, for me, this is, this, is, this is more than a job. I think, you know, we, we should be doing this across the board. And, you know, and important to note that I am a champion for all equality. This just happens to be I'm talking about race equality. Yeah. And maybe um, you can help other people do, you know, have that experience and, and sort of absolutely. create and that more- ripple effect. I'm more than happy to have conversations uh, with you to, to, to have this discussion. It's, it's, it's much overdue. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on, Umar. It's been great. As I said before, guys, we will put links in the show notes to, to Umar, to his blog. Um, and I really encourage you to, to reach out and see if there's a, a way of a, a network of positivity um, that you know people can support each other when they're not quite sure how to do it. There's lots of standalone HR people in smaller businesses too. That's tricky in different ways. Um, sometimes they find it hard to um, approach their leadership. That's a whole other story. But uh, I think it'd be great if we can get some some group of people together to support each other in, in moving this forward. Thank you so much for coming on, Uma. You're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.